Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I am joined today by Gordon Barrett to talk about his new book, China's Cold War Science Diplomacy. Welcome to New Books, Gordon, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great. So why don't we start at the beginning with your beginning? So how did you come to work on Chinese history and modern Chinese history in particular? Sure. Well, it seems to happen so much in my academic career. I kind of, it came by by accident. Um, I went to a small liberal arts university um, and took a variety of history courses, including some Chinese history, but um, actually ended up specializing in, of all things, uh, 20th century Atlantic Canadian history. Um, but there was a summer study program um, that they offered in uh, China at uh, Jiltang University, and um, there were worse places to spend a summer than Hangzhou. And so that kind of set something, I guess, a hair running. And I partly mentioned that because, um, so I went on and, and did a, uh, a master's in, in Chinese studies um, that was partly designed to, to kind of, tr- for people who wanted to transition toward looking at China in, in, in their work. And I got very, very um, lucky in terms of where things intersected with this project, in fact, because um, I've been very fortunate in terms of supervisors, uh, undergraduate masters and, and doctoral and my master's supervisor uh, knew that I had this interest in uh, Atlantic Canadian history and kind of said to me, so have, have you thought about looking at China and, and Pugwash? Because there's, there's there's some really fun documents of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archives uh, that I think you'd really enjoy based on your interests and in kind of digging into. And um, that I realized very quickly actually was going to be too big a project that I wanted to do for a master's thesis and uh, so I uh, decided to put it in my back pocket um, and and develop it further and then I got lucky just in the year between that and starting my um, doctorate I got to spend a year again at Jilada 
um, on the Canada-China Scholars Exchange program um, and getting to spend some, as it turns out again, very fortunately, uh, time in the archive um, before the my, my degree kind of formally got started and, and kind of hit the ground running and realized, ooh, actually there's a lot more to this uh, that I want to explore. So I'm always thrilled for personal reasons when Canada comes up. <laughs> That's very exciting to me. Um, and actually, there is a lot, as you mentioned, pugwash of Canada in this book, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> again, for personal reasons, I am always very excited when Canada um, emerges um, over the course of these conversations. Um, but we're definitely going to be returning to Nova Scotia and Pugwash in particular um, later as it features so prominently in the book. <laughs> but as you said, there was a lot of the book in your answer. So why don't we move to the book itself? Um, so this book is, as you say in the introduction, um, it examines the strategies and structures that supported China's scientific outreach during the first decades of the Cold War. It shows how eminent um, Chinese scientists became interlocutors for the early PRC, particularly through their engagement in a cluster of international organizations and networks. And you focus specifically on um, CCP-supported scientific diplomacy from the 1940s through the early 1970s. And that's a really interesting time period and, you know, a relatively understudied period, especially in terms of science. And it's really not a period of time that has been thought of as one where China has a lot of global reach or influence um, that, you know, that story really starts in the 70s. Um, and as you say in the in the conclusion, actually, but I'll bring it up here, Mao's China was isolated from international science or so the story used to go. And your book sort of really wonderfully calls that into question. Uh, but as a way of sort of situating this book and where it sits in the field, could you talk a little bit about this? You know, what does the story of Mao's China being isolated from international science, what does that story look like? And, you know, where did that come from? Why do, why do we tell that story? Yeah, so I think there's a few different reasons. Um, and again, some of them are quite uh, tightly tied to kind of the, the motivations for undertaking the project. Um, one of the th things that I'd say in, in the scholarship, of course, is I'm not the first person who's kind of looked at um, internationalized science in this period, whether it's Zoe Wang, Fatih Fan, uh, Sigrid Schmaltzer, Aruna Ghosh. Um, there are a number of other people who are looking at this in a variety of ways. Um, and I think one of the, the key things about the 70s is there's a that key moment, uh, a kind of key episode that especially if, again, um, people who use the term science diplomacy and, and so on um, uh, point to about the importance of uh, scientific exchange in uh, rapprochement, uh, Sino-American rapprochement. And uh, as a part of that, I'd say it kind of has led to um, the US context um, and Sino-American relations playing I would argue possibly a slightly outsized um, uh, element in, in terms of how how things are viewed retrospectively. So because um, uh, there was more travel restrictions before then and that kind of thing for Americans and, and vice versa, um, it, that there is this really very uh, visibly transformative event in the 70s 
but there's of course a, a kind of prehistory to all of this um, that plays on. I think that that touches on both the grey areas between you know what is um, political outreach and propaganda, and then what is scientific exchange. And of course, it's kind of all of the above at, at the same time. So again, I think it's a question of of one of the ways I started was again was was thinking about well. Uh, okay, where do we look for this, um, and and what will it look like um, if if we if we find it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you know, with that, in that sort of you know intermeshing, <laughs> intermingling, intermingling the combination of the two, um, that you know, at the heart of that, especially in your book, um, are scientists. <laughs> I suppose you know you show, um, you know, China being interested in global international affairs and international science. Um, and scientists sort of, you know, doing that work, they are really at the front of the CCP's, you know, party state supported (laughs) international outreach um, arm, if you like. Um, Or to put it in the CCP's term, these scientists are are engaged in united front work. Um, And that's such, it's such an important sort of concept and, you know, work (laughs) through your book. Um, So could you introduce this a little bit for listeners? You know, what is United Front Work and how did it manifest in the realm of science? Sure. So United Front Work, I mean, maybe in its most basic terms, is, is it's really about building coalitions, right, of support, increasing influence uh, among, again, in, in my particular interest, networks, organizations. And really, there's a kind of interest to here in, in, in co-opting um, these in a, in a, in a really an instrumental way in support of party aims and party goals and interests. And it's hugely important, not just in the CCP's rise to power, um, but also in its long-term approach to, to governance and, and, and in foreign relations. Now, one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in scientists, again, I think maybe one of my key act, uh, interests, I'd say, probably that runs through a lot of the work um, that I've done is is interest in scientists as kind of political actors um, and, and how also science and ideology interact. Um, and in, in this case, one of the things that really s- struck me as I was getting into the project that kind of was one of the hooks for me was we've got, again, a wonderful uh, and broadening literature on um, Chinese foreign relations, particularly during the period that my book covers with the kind of broad left more generally. Right. Um, and one the two things that I it, it kind of leapt out at me is that uh, on the one hand, when scientists appeared, they were kind of mushed in with other leftist visitors or that kind of thing. Um, and then at the same time, of course, there's this fantastic literature coming out, particularly from the history of science, technology and medicine um, about transnational scientific networks and the the ways in which scientists and self-identification and narration kind of play various roles in in enmeshing them in a political and, and activist activities in particularly in in the in the cold war context and so my interest was kind of saying okay well what 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 happens in in in, in the chinese case how does this manifest in the chinese case and as it became pretty evident to me that that actually there are a number of of key scientists again who are kind of major characters in the book who are very heavily involved in in these kinds of activities 
Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, um, foreign visitors a little bit there, and this is, this is sort of, this will take us, (laughs) we'll jump back, but that's sort of touching on um, something I think we'll get to over the course of our conversation, but we do have a chapter specifically on those visitors. And it's really, it's a really interesting chapter in that you look at these different scientists and each one of them is sort of dealing with that tension (laughs) of being, um, you know, or or actively, some, some of them are actively taking a role (laughs) in the, you know, the more on the political side or more of the science side, but they're really interesting in how each of them is sort of, you know, doing something a little different, (laughs) I suppose, um, in sort of straddling that divide. So I just want to mark that. We will get to it, (laughs) um, but they're coming, (laughs) the visiting scientists. And actually, I might just add one other thing to that, um, which you bring up as, again, one of the other things I was interested in was um, focusing primarily, that chapter coming as the last chapter was very intentional on my part. Um, The last two chapters about people coming to the PRC, because one of the, again, the things that I was interested in exploring is what does the outward facing, the kind of international activities and mobility of Chinese scientists going out there uh, and not just people coming there. That was one of the things that I was very keen to kind of explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we will definitely get to talk about some of those (laughs) Chinese scientists here as well. But before we get into the chapters, I did want to just touch on sources um, because (laughs) this sort of, you know, um, pulls us away from the book a little bit. But um, as you hint at in the introduction, this book is really made up of sort of fragmentary material. (laughs) And, you know, there are you've put together this really beautiful mosaic, as as you mentioned, as you sort of term it in the introduction. And there are glimpses of this, you know, in the chapters themselves. Um, But sort of before we dive in. Could you give, you know, myself and listeners a little bit of a sense of this? What kind of, you know, sources were you drawing on? What did, you know, doing the research for the for this book sort of look like? Sure. <laughs> what was that experience like for you? <laughs> um, variable across the period. So I mentioned that I was quite fortunate to have got to spend a good chunk of time in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archive before I started my doctorate. Uh, and the reason I say that was fortunate is um, that uh, access to archives um, broadly in China, but also specifically the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, let's just say changed dramatically across the course of it, Um, which actually, in my particular case, I think actually led to a more interesting project, if I'm being fully honest, because um, it kind of pushed me to think about um, some other other things that as the project had started, I was going to be mostly uh, uh, based at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And and I'd say that that probably is still the core material that kind of everything else is built on. Um, but also I ended up exploring municipal archives, material in municipal archives in Beijing and Shanghai in particular, um, but also scientists' personal papers, uh, some organizational archives, for example, the that of the World Federation of Scientific Workers, um, and then also so coverage of activities, the, these types of exchange activities or propaganda activities, however you want to you know, frame them, um, in academic journals, newsletters, magazines, newspapers in China and abroad, basically almost anything I could get my hands on uh, <laughs> um, that, that, uh, that referred to these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of... Um, I there's a great attention paid to sort of how some of these events were covered. So I just want to mark that. I don't think we're going to dive into that too much, but um, that was one of the most interesting parts um, for as a reader 
for me was reading sort of the coverage, both the events and the details and what happened and where and who paid for it, but also then how is it reported on, um, just made for a really interesting part um, of the book itself. So I, I can't say that I'm thrilled that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was closed for you or, you know, that access was difficult, but <laughs> as you say, it led in some really interesting directions for sure. It, 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 it did. And, and, and as I say, I think, um, yeah, it was it, working in the archive was interesting because I was I was there when it was kind of fully open, and then mm. in the period when about I think we think about ninety percent of the material you know was unavailable, but there was still some fascinating material that was amongst that was still <laughs> there. So it's it's um, yeah, it's it's been an interesting process. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we dive then to look at the results of that interesting sure. process? <laughs> um, to segue us into this. Um, so chapter one. Um, so chapter one, I'll just sort of give a brief summary of, of it, um, sort of looks at the the evolution um, of this of CCP support for the involvement of Chinese scientists in international scientific organizations. Um, so you begin this chapter actually by talking a little bit about the Republican period. Um, so you look at the Chinese Association of Scientific Workers, uh, which was created in 1945. And you touch on a little bit here that this sort of, you know, it, it did um, open branches in cities that were held by the Kuomintang, um, but the CCP were also involved and interested. Um, so we have this organization, but then we sort of move to look at the World Federation of Scientific Workers, um, an international organization. And you point out that scientists associated with the Chinese Association of Scientific Workers were involved with the WFSW from the beginning, that they were, you know, they were elected to prominent positions um, in the WFSW. Uh, But then after 1949, things really ramp up. (laughs) So CCP leaders um, are acutely very interested in being involved in international scientific organizations um, to the dismay, I suppose, of of French and British governments. And you show how they (laughs) sort of subtly tried to block um, China, you know, from being actively involved in in particular sort of key moments. Um, So this part of the chapter, it covers a number of different um, meetings of the WFSW. So you look at, you know, who was involved, who attended, who paid for it. There's a lot of talk about money, um, where the meeting was held. (laughs) But out of all these different meetings, um, is there maybe one in particular that you want to sort of highlight, one that really, you know, encapsulates the kind of engagement that the PRC wanted to have or was trying to have with the Federation? So, I mean, in some ways, the obvious one might be to say the 1956 Executive Council meeting that was held in Beijing, in part because of the, the Federation's 10th anniversary celebration. And that's uh, is held in Beijing at the same time. And, and so, of course, it's very kind of potently symbolic. And, and also that's, you know, I have a section on it at the end of the chapter that covers, as you say, that roughly 10 year, tier, 10 year span from 46 to 56. Actually, though, um, 1952, the executive council meeting that was held in in uh, Vienna, uh, to kind of add to the dates and places and and, and that you were mentioning, um, but actually it's because it's precisely that I think that that period that you were 
mentioning is, is, is hugely important where the Federation itself is frankly, in a point of crisis, an existential crisis, the British and French governments are, are uh, in particular, are, are trying to kind of squeeze it. And, and that um, meeting, just of its kind of top brass, um, uh, is, is prevented from happening in a few different ways. And as I say, it eventually ends up going ahead in Vienna. But one of the reasons that it goes ahead is because of Chinese intervention, because they step in and pay their fees, affiliation fees in advance, which allows basically the funding to to, to, to let the, the meeting go ahead and for people to move. Um, one of the reasons, you know, I see that is, as quite a significant moment is showing, well, look, this, this, this is a very active and important intervention, but also it's hugely significant in terms of how the Federation itself will then evolve because that's the meeting at which uh, green lights the entry of affiliated organizations from hungary from poland and most of course importantly of course the soviet union and so this sets in motion some really big shifts within the organization um and ones ironically enough that in the longer term would become an issue for china come the breakdown of the sino-soviet alliance but but again you know the two things being here that one china and Chinese scientists in particular are, are involved from the get-go, whereas at least formally the Soviets aren't. Um, but also that, as I say, they play a kind of facilitation role, I think is is kind of hugely important, especially in how the, the um, MFA and other actors are kind of viewing the, their engagement. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, the funding, that's something that comes up at numerous points throughout this book in terms of, you know, the vast amounts of money that are being spent on these different engagements or sponsoring conferences or, you know, hosting conferences. Um, there's there's quite a bit of money involved. And that sort of just sort of lends itself, um, you know, as support or backing behind the point that, um, you know, the CCP is taking these events very seriously. <laughs> There's great investment um, in them. Well, and I think even just supporting the mobility of those scientists who are attending them, right? It's mm-hmm. time consuming and expensive to, to travel um, at, at these stages. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of logistics that goes into making it happen. Mm-hmm. On the topic of, you know, logistics and travel, mm-hmm. um, I do want to make sure we spend quite a bit of time on pugwash. Um, again, yeah. <laughs> personal get bias. Yes, get back to Canada. Um, to Nova Scotia. <laughs> very rare I get to talk about Nova Scotia here. But um, so the pugwash conferences, they've come up a few times. Um, but chapter two sort of really focuses on them. And, you know, you note here again that Chinese scientists were involved in the Pugwash conferences on science and world affairs um, right from the beginning. Um, and I'm actually, you know, thinking of these conferences and what they're doing. Actually, I wonder if I could back up a little and ask you to sort of just touch on, you know, what the what the goal of these conferences were, the Pugwash conferences in particular, you know, what were they doing <laughs> as, as a sort of conference? Before we talk a little bit about Chinese involvement, um, but so what was Pugwash? <laughs> Why what did it happen? Pugwash? Well, again, all that we could we could be talking for an hour and a half and uh, about what what was or what is Pugwash because that it is a, a fascinatingly complex um, uh, thing. But at its most basic terms, um, Pugwash was envisaged as a, a way of getting scientists together um, with this notion that 
scientists could speak a common language, that being a science, um, with with interest. Um, it started off being really focused on anti-nuclear activism in terms of proliferation. Um, it, it came out of something called the Russell Einstein Manifesto, um, and um, which again features a little bit in, in, in the chapter in terms of how um, even the organizers of, of the manifesto were were thinking about having Chinese involvement, even if that in that particular case fell through. Um, and and the idea was to bring scientists from a, a, across the Cold War divides, across the blocks, to to really kind of talk in a frank and, and open way, uh, and and ultimately to to potentially influence their their governments and policy making and that kind of thing in, in a way that might help avert uh, nuclear catastrophe. For, yeah, no, thank you for setting that up. So with that context, let's d- touch on the person who was sent <laughs> from China or invited maybe, um, but <laughs> so much of this chapter looks at um, the Chinese scientists who attended the first conference um, and then uh, a few others. And finally, the last one, this, or at least the last one for which there was Chinese involvement in 1960, which, as you know, was the last Pugwash event to have Chinese involvement for the next um, 25 years. So there's uh, incredible, you know, tense <laughs> negotiations going on in the background ab- about who is going to attend these events. Um, and you, your chapter really examines the tensions between individual scientists and the PRC party state in shaping and establishing what Chinese engagement with, you know, what you just sort of set up so beautifully the the goals of Pugwash were. Um, And what really struck me was, you know, the degree of influence particular scientists were able to have. Um, And I'm thinking here in particular of um, Zhou Peiyuan, the scientist who attended the early Pugwash conferences. So could you tell us about him? What what did he do um, at the, you know, what did he do in general, but what did he do at the early Pugwash conferences? And, you know, what do you make of him as a, you know, an agent of PRC science diplomacy? Well, if we're going to talk about Joe Peyuan, I feel like the person I have to quote uh, is Mary Brown Bullock. And I actually do so in the book because I feel like her formulation just encapsulates it perfectly. Also, she knew him. Uh, and she described him as China's scientist diplomat par excellence. And I, I, I really could, I couldn't put it better because, I mean, it, this is very much a kind of lifelong activity. It's worth you know keeping in mind that when we're talking about that 25-year absence from Pugwash, Joe Peiyuan is at the leading the delegation when China comes back, uh, and he's involved in the 1990s when China plays host just before his death. Uh, he's it's it, he's really a, a kind of properly lifelong pugwashite, um, and in some ways I think uh, he kind of perfectly encapsulates the tension because when you're looking at the sources and, and hearing people um, uh, talk about him from the Pugwash contest, they, they will talk about oh, Joe Peiyuan's our man, man in Beijing, right? Whereas <laughs> in Beijing, he's very much in a, well, he's our man in, 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 in Pugwash. And he, along with the constellation, and he's probably, I'd say, the kind of main character in the book, uh, if there is one, but along with uh, Zhu Kezhen, uh, the meteorologist, um, 
Tianchen Chang and Li Siguang are kind of the quartet of of, of scientists who focus uh, on this. Now, Zhou Peiyuan is kind of well suited um, uh, disciplinarily to being uh, at something like Pugwash. He's a theoretical physicist, so he kind of fits in with a lot of the very physics dominated crowd that's at the very first Pugwash conferences. Um, but really, the reasons that he's kind of selected and he is selected to to go uh, on the Chinese side is is less some of those uh, that specialization, but more the kind of interpersonal um, uh, things the the way the ways that his networks uh, have evolved, how well connected, how well known, and how well respected he is. He's a brilliant scientist. He'd spent years uh, studying and uh, also working in the United States, also Western Europe. Um, he'd been uh, at the Institute of Advanced Study for a year with um, uh, Albert Einstein. Um, and he was able to kind of draw very effectively on that background uh, when when interacting with others. He kind of, he's always consistently described as kind of very um, well-spoken and urbane and, and able to kind of talk about, you know, his favorite diners when he was a student and things like that, which, you know, play a big role in in, in helping uh, kind of him connect on, on a variety of levels with, um, with, with the others who are at these events. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite, um, moments in this chapter is where you're discussing, you know, how, how, um, his, uh, he does not mention in his official reports, his time reminiscing about Chicago, <laughs> but it's clear from sort of other reports, um, you know, outside of China that, that, that happened as well. The sort of the personal connection that is so important, um, you know, alongside the science that's happening and able to happen at these conferences, especially the early ones when he is alone, when he's the one representative sort of on his own able to talk about Chicago. And, and that's really striking, the fact that he's trusted enough to go alone. Mm-hmm. He's not accompanied by a, a, a translator. He's not uh, got other members of the delegation, anybody looking over his shoulder. So it is interesting the extent to which he is, you know, his reports back um, are a, a key bit of kind of shaping um, thinking and discourse uh, in terms of how he narrates um, and steers the relationship with the organization. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned sort of steering, actually, I'll pick up on that, because that's sort of a a continual (laughs) um, tension, I suppose, in China's involvement with these conferences. China's continually trying to sort of steer things or trying to work out how it can best steer things, if I can sort of put it like that. Um, And so you get over the course of the chapter sort of different um, different attempts to sort of, you know, figure out where China best sits and different attempts to sort of figure out um, different ways in which China can steer things. Um, and as we touched on a little bit, um, by 1960, the PRC has really decided to sort of move away from pugwash. Um, <laughs> um, it's not really working out the way that they want to, um, in part because of very tense interactions with the uh, Soviet scientists, um, <laughs> the 1960 pugwash conference. Um, but the World Federation of Scientific Workers is seen as having a little bit more potential, particularly in the fight against imperialism. So they decide to sort of try this a little bit more. And that's where chapter three takes us. Um, But in chapter three, we sort of see the impact of China's increasingly radical 1960s foreign relations um, on the international activities of Chinese scientists. 
Um, but there's, you know, even more involvement um, from Chinese scientists in WFSW leadership, greater involvement in the Federation's magazine, um, and throughout, you know, CCP foreign policymakers are attempting to use the Federation to their own ends. But things really change with the Sino-Soviet split. <laughs> so this is a, you know, a, a, books have been written and will continue to be written on the Sino-Soviet split, but here... Um, how did it impact the involvement of Chinese scientists in the WFSW? Sort of focusing on this very small thing. <laughs> how does the Sino-Soviet split manifest here? Well, I mean, uh, uh, as you point out, it manifests, uh, you know, across just as there's been books in, in terms of debating <laughs> when did the Sino-Soviet split, you know, start and, and, and when do we debate it? I, I think, you know, that fits very nicely into the, the, the muddied water there because, you know the the tensions are evident uh, even from the late fifties, um, in 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 some ways in both organisations, um, Pagwash and the World Federation, um, and you see, yeah, we see this interesting bit where they basically again that that central dynamic that I mentioned that kind of comes up in chapter one, the fact that China was there. Um, at the very beginning in the World Federation compared to to Pugwash where where the Soviets are, are, are much more entrenched or at least are you know perceived to be by by Chinese foreign policymakers. And so there's there's the strategic pivot to go, well let's go f- toward the organization where we, we think we have more traction and we have more sympathy. Um, and as you say, it, it it you know there are efforts, but the thing is the the extent to which uh, as in many other international organizations, scientific and otherwise, in which both the Soviets and the Chinese are involved in 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 the mid '60s, um, it, you know, meetings are getting derailed by um, rival motions and attempts to disrupt and to kind of uh, wrest control from each other um, in some fairly colorful episodes. Um, that again, I think really to come back to what we were talking about earlier that kind of really put the the scientists who are having to, to enact these under a considerable amount of strain the kind of tightrope that they're they're walking and 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 the pivots that they're having to undertake are, are quite challenging for them um and what that ultimately results in though is a decision to kind of on their way out of the world federation to to do their own thing, this this forum isn't working for us. So so we're going to find something else. But before we do, we're going to piggyback onto that, um, <laughs> whether they want it or not. Um, uh, are the kind of this sowing the seeds of our own initiative, which would kind of come to fruition in the um, Peking Science Symposium uh, conferences, um, starting in 1964. Um, and so that and that is in some respects. Uh, the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of of, of relations, um, although they do kind of limp on for a few more years in in in, in the sixties, um, but uh, really the yeah, about sixty three sixty four becomes a major pivot point. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite. One of my favorite lines in this chapter was um, you're, you're talking about the sort of the the dis, the, the falling out, if you will, um, and you have this great line: China was on its way out, but it was not going to do so without making a great deal of noise in the process. Um, and that just made me laugh because you also have some really interesting, you know, talking about the tension um, and the 
um, immense sort of um, the difficult position scientists were placed under. You have some really interesting, you know, very polemical speeches um, <laughs> that you quote from extensively here <laughs> um, in discussing, you know, just how tense these meetings were, just how tense these general assemblies were. Um, there's there's some harsh words um, being said. <laughs> there are. And then, and then at the same time, the kind of less harsh discussions happening between friends, you know, outside of the, the official forums, and then also things becoming very difficult for those who are most sympathetic to or who are the longest term friends or colleagues and supporters of, of the, the Chinese representatives who are who are kind of trying to 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 massage <laughs> the relationship just ultimately um, proves too difficult. Mm-hmm. So they've tried pugwash. They've tried the World Federation of Scientific Workers. And then, as you say, they try the Peking Science Symposiums. <laughs> and this is the focus of Chapter 4. Um, and, you know, we touched on a little bit the, the amounts of money that were being spent. Um, so these were two science um, symposiums in 1964 and 1966. Um, and touching on funding, these were expensive, <laughs> complicated events. Um, and, you know, they're really actively trying here to bring regional allies together. Um, they were designed to bring science scientists um, from the developing world together. Um, and I just want to just throw out the numbers because they're really interesting in thinking about how China is or isn't, you know, interconnected with the outside world during this period. Um, 367 scientists from 44 countries took part in the 1964 symposium and 144 scientists from 33 countries took part in the 1966 colloquium. Um, so these are, you know, really culminations of long-held ambitions of the CCP to bring scientists to the PRC. Um, and they're really hoping through these to promote regional solidarity. So touching on, uh, you mentioned before, you know, those sympathetic or those a little bit friendly to the PRC, they're really trying to <laughs> bring those people together uh, and promote regional solidarity. So how did they try to do that in these events? You know, what were some of the things that they tried and how would you say it went? How, how were those, you know, were those goals met or not so much? Well, so that, I mean, it's, it's a tricky question because I think, I think the answer is both yes and, and no at the same time in, in some ways. I mean, again, it, it partly, I think speaks to in some ways the diversity of, of the attendees at both of these events. And of course, one of the other reasons I was really interested in them is, you know, the, the 1964 event, it's, it's the biggest international science meeting that the PRC hosts up to that point. Um, and, and of course, that dynamic is absolutely crucial that you highlight, right? Is, is, is the exclusion of who's not invited. Um, I, I, endlessly entertained by the fact that because Oceania was included that there were a couple of random you know uh, Australians and New Zealanders who, who tagged along but otherwise you know uh, uh, Central and Eastern e- Europe um, not invited North America outside of you know North um, you know Mexico for example but that basically there was a, a conscious uh, uh, attempt to um, uh, exclude the the kind of good chunks of the socialist and also the you know so-called western worlds um and you know i think so the, the to to start off with the strategies right there's a mixture of um uh i mean there's a whole bunch of infrastructure that's put in in place um 
uh, in terms of the actual science that's going on, these are such large events and they're so broad. Even the physics colloquium in 66 is so broad that um, I don't know how... I'd be hesitant to say there was a huge amount of, of depth to the material. That said, you know, you do see, for example, some citations uh, in, in later work of, uh, of papers that people presented there. So, so it's I don't. This is again where that that interesting tension between kind of the the exchange and and propaganda uh, is, um, because that is happening, and and um, I should say that is the scientific exchange happening, um, but at the same time, kind of placed all around it, uh, beyond who's invited, of course, are invitations to to rallies. Um, and in '66, you know, more interest in, in of course, in in this cultural revolution thing that seems to be um, coming together because it's in, in August of '66, so it's a really kind of fascinating moment um, when it's being held, um, and. Uh, of course, discussions about, you know, going back to your question in, in terms of the promoting regional solidarity, there's a lot of Vietnam uh, related uh, content that, that uh, China is pushing. And of course, um, in, in each of the cases, um, and one of the interesting dynamics is the fact that the uh, Japanese contingents are, are both, you know, some of the largest um, in terms of national uh, groupings coming over, so so there's there's clearly an awful lot happening, and again, I think it's a potentially a mixed bag in the short term, and 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 certainly you know that these have been envisaged as happening every two years. So sixty four, there you know is a big multidisciplinary event. Sixty six is physics. Then it was supposed to go back in sixty eight to a big multidisciplinary one. Obviously, they didn't continue. Um, uh, however, you know, people who attended these meetings did later in life travel back to China and 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 have experiences there that kind of shaped and formed them. So I'd say, you know, potentially, actually, if you look at this in, in, in a longer lens, it's potentially a greater influence than might be first thought. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And you were touching on there the tension between, you know, exchange and propaganda. And that for me, at least came through, I guess, most obviously, or maybe most clearly in sort of the after conference events, you have a great discussion of sort of, you know, the, the cultural tours <laughs> that some of the delegates um, were going on. So you, you know, you described the, the one of the one group of Japanese delegates who, you know, they went to I can remember correctly, they went to see a commune, they went to a study seminar on Mao Zedong thought, they went to see a children's recreation center, and then, you know, uh, heavy machinery, and then an eight model play. <laughs> so a real, <laughs> a real mix of, of everything sort of all at once. Absolutely. And and then, and that in some ways is where these, this ties in to go back to that United, the other aspect of the United Front work and some of the kind of wider outreach among the, the global left you know, all of those things you've just described, of course, are and also the places they were visiting are kind of would be familiar ones to to other visitors who would come who are non scientific. So, so you know, it's again there's this interesting tension between scientists as a kind of distinct category, but also within a, a broader spectrum of activities. 
So speaking of visitors, so this brings us to, as I promised at the very beginning, chapter five. <laughs> and this chapter um, looks at five um, British um, visitors, all of them sympathetic to China, or at least with very left-wing political views. Um, and there are, you know, each of the five scientists that you focus on here are so different. And you, you make a, you make it very you make a point in this chapter very clearly of saying that, you know, trying to group them together in terms of what they were doing or what they were thinking or what they wanted from it, you know, any way you try to group them really does sort of run the risk of oversimplifying each individual. Um, but one thing that does link them, and I will note, they're all fascinating and they're just really interesting people and really interesting lives. Uh, but one thing that does link them is the existence and importance of connection. So you know that each of them had sort of a direct relationship with, you know, someone or colleagues or friends, or they knew someone who knew someone. Um, and some of these, you know, predated 1949. Um, but thinking about connections. Um, so could you explain maybe, you know, with one or two examples, the importance of connections to these scientists? And, you know, more broadly, why is this sort of important? <laughs> Thinking about, you know, the the we see these connections, how do they how do they matter in terms of how we think about um, science in this period or you know China's place in the international world? Why is the uh, connection so important here? So I think uh, that, yeah, personal connections are a real personal and professional, and then the way those bleed together, right, are, are incredibly important in this chapter. And this is one of the, the reasons that I, I wanted to in, include it. Um, just to, to showcase that I think, it, it again, the in, individuals, a lot of this book, you know, the previous chapter was thinking partly about the, you know, structures, domestic structures down to, you know, what's the role of local scientific organizations in, in hosting duties of these symposia. And I think I, I'm, you know, was really keen not to lose the individuals because for those who were making these journeys in either uh, direction, it, it was the individuals and those relationships that really mattered. And I think it's because, um, you know, to, I guess I'm a child of the internationalization generation in terms of, uh, of, of China scholarship, in terms of seeing that longer term impact, right, of, of, of internationalization in terms of science, you know, that um, uh, so often, again, is pointed to the Boxer Indemnity Scholarship Program, for example, which, of course, didn't just happen in the United, case of the United States, but also the United Kingdom, right? And so one of the, the points I'm kind of trying to make about, in a sense, Chinese scientists and Chinese science uh, through this chapter is, is the extent to which um, the scientists who, who feature this uh, here are, are, are well-connected and very crucially also well-respected by their colleagues, right? Um, the the British scientists, or British-based, maybe more accurately, scientists um, who I'm talking about in this chapter, are all kind of very well known in their field. In some cases, more notorious than others for their political views. Um, but you know, they're very good in in laboratory and very well respected for that. I mean, maybe one example I might point to. Um, so one of the one of the scientists I talk about is Kathleen Lonsdale, the crystallographer. Um, and, you know, alongside the really quite pioneering work she's doing um, as, as a scientist and in the lab, 
Um, she's, of course, a, a Quaker and a very passionate uh, peace activist. Um, and so, again, with the, 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 the blurring of activities, she, you know, she her trip to China uh, is 1955 is part of a, a, a big uh, you know, goodwill mission. Right. She's the only scientist in that group. Um but what's really notable in her case is the fact that she gets fed up with the main itinerary doing those types of visits that you described happening in 66. Um, and as a result, the host, her host let her go off and basically do her own thing and, and start to visit universities and research institutes and labs, right? She has this, she wants to connect with scientists. And again, in terms of the relationships, she's in some ways the odd one out of the, the the group in this chapter because she doesn't have the same strength of direct uh, relationships, but she still, for example, ends up meeting uh, Hong Kun, uh, who had published the previous year a book with her friend Max Bourne, uh, and they spent some time visiting, and uh, she knew Dorothy Hodgkin and uh, Desmond Bernal and, and others who all did have very close friends and networks and who kind of said, look up so-and-so, look up so-and-so, talk to them, you know, that you'll have a great conversation um, with them. And then also is trying to facilitate, and again, you see Joe Peiwen discreetly doing this the other way around, incidentally, at Pugwash, right? Trying to facilitate communication back the other way um, and take up messages. Um, and, and even Lonsdale trying to do things like um, uh, fill gaps in, in journal uh, holding at institutions that she sees, send off prints uh, and that kind of thing. But one of the other reasons that I, I love Kathleen Lonsdale as an example in the chapter is where she kind of is the exception that proves the rule in her insistence of, in not wanting to portray herself as a China expert, um, <laughs> which is very rare. <laughs> and so she'll very happily, you know, she tells people, oh, I'll... I'll circulate my notes with you and stuff like that, but I no, I don't want to get up and and mm-hmm. and and talk publicly about this. Thank you very much. I don't know enough, <laughs> <laughs> which again is is a comparatively rare thing um, for uh, for the scientists and frankly, plenty of other visitors at the time. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about your description of her and her her sort of reaction to what's going on is her. I suppose her observation, um, and I this is not entirely related to the chapter, but I just thought it was so interesting. Her observation that the length of her talk varied depending on who was translating her, which I just I would have loved to, you know, it's sort of just mentioned here as her sort of like, huh, interesting. <laughs> but she talks, you talk about how her talks, you know, varied, you know, from an hour to sort of over four hours. Even though her talk didn't change, it was just the way in which she was being translated and, you know, whether or not someone was adding or, you know, giving context or commentating or what was going on um, with her translators, that her her talks could vary so very much. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just as, as an aside one of the reasons that I was interested in that commentary of hers and also some of these other experiences is that, um, unlike Joseph Needham. So this is one of the other reasons that I wrote the chapter. He appears in the background in a few places, and there's a, a bit of a six degrees of, of separation uh, thing uh, going on here in terms of there's usually a connection that you can find somewhere. But just to make the point that he wasn't the only one going over, and of course his experience in some ways was exceptional because 
he had a greater awareness of of what people were saying around him and and an ability to kind of interact during this period whereas of course um these other visitors were very much kind of subject to to the translators and in many of these cases with those talks those translators were people based at the local institution um uh, either students or or staff who um who had a base level of knowledge to to be able to translate often fairly technical talks right this is one of the things that in the previous chapter comes up is is the importance of okay we have to train up a bunch of these translators to work at this science conference because it's a very a broad set of very specific types of language that's going to be used um so anyway yeah, yeah it's definitely i guess running in the background a little bit here that the need to this is again <laughs> personal, much more of something that I appreciate from my own sort of background and interests here, but there's definitely the importance of translators or it's definitely in the background. Um, but I want to make sure we have a little bit of time, um, you know, putting what I am personally interested in aside, I want to make sure we have time to talk about the conclusion. Um, so the conclusion really speaks to, you know, the consequences or, you know, of the insights of the book. So there's a few things it touches on. Um, it looks at how we might think of international science during the Cold War period and China's place within it. Now that we have, you know, a different sense of China's scientific outreach, um, it touches on, you know, the fact that there are these continuities between the state-sponsored international activities of the Mao period and those under Deng Xiaoping. Um, you know, so looking across and making it very clear that there is um, an across <laughs> the 1978 divide. Um, and finally, it touches on, you know, the long-term importance of the approach of the CCP towards science diplomacy, um, keeping in mind China's, you know, rise as a science and technology superpower. Um, so there's a lot in the conclusion, and it really does do a great job of summarizing everything and, you know, putting it all together. But <laughs> is there one is there one part of it that you would like to highlight here? Maybe something we haven't really had a chance to talk um, too much about. So I, I guess, I mean, possibly to kind of come back to the the piece of jargon in terms of thinking about the the now and the the present day um and it's that term science diplomacy which um is anachronistic right in how i deploy it and i do try and make that clear in the introduction um but the reason for doing so and the reason why i think maybe it's we worth mentioning this right is because one of the interesting things that you see when talking about um talking about china now um and its influence right is is it's increasingly entering these discourses and science diplomacy discourses are kind of practitioner orient uh, originating and then academics have kind of taken them on since and so that adds a, a certain degree of messiness to it um in terms of how that they're proposed but i think uh, you know, one of the, the motivations for, for the, the, the chapter and for really using the term was to kind of address, okay, well, you know, let's be careful when we're using this term science diplomacy, because there's attempts to draw kind of through lines back through time and to say, okay, this is distinct. This is different from, say, what the United States or uh, the United Kingdom is doing, Um uh, for example, um, and why is there? And I think there's a, a, you know, a dangerous impulse to potentially essentialize, right? And to go maybe a bit too far back uh, or do 
particular types of things and so one of the things that you know the conclusion tries to do that i think is i i hope that the book tries to do is to show that okay no again things didn't magically appear in the 70s right um and then oh just shoot off that there is there's kind of foundations that have been laid beforehand but at the same time those foundations come in a variety of different ways whether it's internationalization in the early uh, 20th century or again you know united front work and these kinds of things the, the the kind of longer bits of continuities and so those to me when when talking and thinking about again science diplomacy whatever that may be in terms of china you know that those are some of the things that i think we we possibly need to to, to be thinking about mm-hmm. and as i said it really is um a, you know <laughs> conclusions do many different things in general um but this one i found to be particularly effective and that it sort of brought all of that all of what well, you touched on it much to more hear. together it, it let's just say it went through a few drafts um so <laughs> I, that, that that is that is very reassuring. <laughs> as as is the way of conclusions. Indeed. <laughs> but now that you're finished with those drafts, now that the mm-hmm. book <laughs> exists in its final form, um, it can't. Well, I won't never say never. But now that it exists in its final form, um, what are you working on? now what are you working on next Uh, this is the way of academia now that you've done now that you're done with this what is the next big thing that you're working on gordon well i've got a few different things in in the fire i mean one of the things again i think this is a fairly typical story right is they started life as a dissertation um and then i needed to step away from that uh, dissertation for a little while and was very excited to get you know kind of other things moving and then have kind of come back to it um so i mean the one of the things i'm working on there's a there's a thread here where there i i it really struck me when i was doing this research a number of um psychologists who were involved in in um the chinese association of scientific workers people like pan shu and uh so one of the things i've been working on that is turned into thanks to the pandemic i think uh, it's evolving into a longer term project um is on psychiatry and psychology in in the early uh, prc periods and kind of the science medicine boundary and uh, disciplinarity um but also um thinking more broadly about uh uh, region again when it comes to some of this foreign relations stuff um i'm these days I, i'm a postdoctoral researcher on a on a project about the history of data diplomacy um and so i've been actually revisiting which is where the book opens the international geophysical year and, and china's non-participation in that um and um i i'm looking at a, a variety of issues uh, centering around the IGY and um, uh, also some other aspects of exchange in the in the early 50s that uh, kind of takes things in different directions and is thinking about again questions of I- identity um, and um, um, how how networks um, functioned in in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So definitely some through lines there in terms of, you know, the networks, the connections, <laughs> the importance of them. Um, well, my very best of luck 
and and sources, I suppose. I, I wish good sources and good access <laughs> upon you um, as you embark on those projects, moving away from uh, crystallographers and, and nuclear scientists to psychologists. Um, it sounds like a fascinating project. Um, best of luck with that. And thank you for taking the time in talking with me about this project, though. Yeah, again, thank you very much for having me. 